everyone. My name is Maria Thomas, and I work for Allianz Research, the global team of economists, strategists, sector advisors, and foresight experts of the Allianz Group, led by Ludovic Subron. Welcome to Tomorrow, a podcast where we'll be talking about our latest analyses of economic and capital market developments, as well as our views on trends affecting risk management. Let's get started. Global economic growth should remain robust, despite the uncertainty from the Omicron variant. But there is an increasing divergence between advanced and emerging market economies. Emerging markets are expected to lag global growth for the first time since the 2008 financial crisis. In this episode, let's dive into the outlook for 2022 and 2023 with Anna Boata, Head of Economic Research at Euler Hermes, and Andy Jobst, Head of Macroeconomic and Capital Markets Research at Allianz. Hello, Anna and Andy. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Maria. Hi, Maria. Thanks for having me. Okay, so to start off the new season, we thought we could dive into our outlook for 2022, which we released last month with a title inspired by the movie Don't Look Up. So should we be that worried about the global economy this year? Well, Maria, obviously, as an economist, uh, you you try to be even-handed. I mean, we, we alluded to the eponymous movie uh, with some intent. Obviously, the movie carries some polarizing undertone. But let me be clear, I mean, we, we, we really don't project, you know, uh, an impending catastrophic disaster. Uh, <laughs> That's really what we, what we meant to, meant to address is really the fact that, you know, we have a human tendency right, to focus on the near term, and that often prevents us from seeing the bigger picture. So in the current situation, given the current uncertainty, uh, also given the volatility in the markets we see at the moment, that, that provides plenty of noise, right? And that might keep us from looking up, looking at the positives. Okay. And um, so we, we, we still see a robust recovery, um, but obviously much will depend, and that links us back to the movie, will depend on credible policies, right, in the face of great uncertainty. And that's, that's what we see at the moment. So what would you say are some of the defining trends that could shape the economic re- recovery this year? Well, emerging markets, uh, they are for the first time since the great financial crisis lagging this recovery. And and while the global economy recovery remains robust, uh, it is becoming much more uneven. And, and we do see a rising divergence between advanced and emerging markets. And it's true that lately, uh, against the renewed COVID outbreaks, the growth momentum has held up quite well. Uh, consumption has been uh, resilient. Investments still grew. Uh, and there was quite a strong growth in global trade. Uh, therefore, of course, global growth this year is still expected to trend above uh, uh, 4% uh, and, and therefore to decline uh, in 2023 to 3.2%. Well, it's not so bad. It's close to what we had in 2017 when the global economy was recovering. Uh, but actually, in both years, uh, more than half of this recovery is driven by advanced economies. So clearly, the emerging markets are lagging. And it's a combination of several things, uh, lower vaccination rates, efficiency, uh, but also early monetary t- tightening, uh, withdrawal of fiscal support, and, and more importantly, uh, the Chinese negative uh, external contributions, uh, which obviously are driving uh, on the downside uh, some of the emerging markets and, and especially the, the commodity uh, exporters. Uh, so hence, I would say that it's, it's quite reasonable to believe that uh, the emerging countries will need uh, at least another two to three years uh, to, to actually fully recover from the crisis. 
Let's talk a bit more about China, because in the report, you do mention that it will make the lowest contribution to global GDP growth since 2015. If we look closer, of course, growth is, is quite decent this year, right? 5.2%, uh, 5% in 2023. But actually, growth is much more in a stabilizing regime in the first half of this year with a very modest recovery thereafter. Uh, of course, it's... Uh, It's not only due to the COVID-19 outbreaks, uh, but also to the uncertainty, uncertainty related to the real estate sector, uh, to the regulation itself, uh, if it's in the energy sector, if it's uh, regarding banks, uh, also the absence of the consumer, uh, because we do see uh, negative confidence effects, be it from the real estate sector, but also from the uh, zero COVID policy. Uh, and, and therefore, we do believe that there is a need for more policy easing in China. Uh, including more fiscal stimulus, but also uh, further rate cuts and, and further liquidity boost. Uh, now, of course, the troubles will still be there and there are still considerable downside risks to this scenario. Uh, we do expect investment growth to be relatively weak. Uh, of course, the, the real estate sector remains exposed to further credit events. Uh, but uh, we don't expect any major accident. So basically, the policy mix will make the job in order to stabilize uh, the, these downside risks. Uh, going forward, of course, uh, we do expect this zero COVID uh, policy to remain in place uh, for most of the 2022, uh, which, of course, will continue to limit uh, domestic uh, growth recovery, uh, but also uh, externally keep uh, pressures on, on global supply chains quite high. Uh, again, all in, in terms of policy support, uh, and even more so if actually the efficiency of the past policy measures uh, and, for example, fiscal spending being below expectations, there is, there is clearly a need to do much more, and they will actually do much more, especially looking at the divergence uh, with the advanced economies, which are entering a, a more normalization phase when it comes to, to monetary policy. Maybe to latch on what uh, uh, Anna mentioned, a very important point about China's uh, zero COVID policy, because uh, in a way it also affects something uh, that is very much um, in the front of everybody's mind, inflation. Um, and when you imagine that we have ongoing supply side uh, constraints when it comes to um, imports uh, from China, if China continues pursuing a, a, a zero COVID policy, that combined with uh, a domestic situation where the herd immunity might be impaired by a diminishing efficacy of the Chinese uh, vaccine, um, it could well be that you know we see uh, a few more months added uh, to you know, our projection about a normalization of supply chains. Um, that affects Europe as much as the US. Um, but overall, in the bigger picture, right, we are still uh, obviously worried about, about uh, inflationary pressures, even though we believe, still believe that um, uh, most of the inflationary drivers um, are non-structural, and we expect inflation to be on the path to normalization during the second half of this year. Um, most notably, inflation expectations have remained broadly um, uh, anchored uh, in in most countries. Uh, but uh, we do we do see those supply demand imbalances still pushing up inflation a great deal uh, for much longer than expected. 
So um, together with the clogged supply chains, high energy prices, we also um, need to look at labor markets, right? Because uh, those have been been uh, tight in the US and also becoming tighter in Europe. And uh, together with, uh, you know, an overheating of some COVID-exposed sectors, uh, construction, et cetera, where we've already seen price pressures prior to COVID, uh, that, of course, uh, could lead to um, further uh, uh, price pressures, uh, keeping inflation elevated for much longer than expected. Um, so that's kind of the inflation picture so in, in, in broad strokes. Um, uh, we, we, we were all surprised about, you know, how how long uh, in the inflationary pressures have, have lasted or continue to last, but we do remain uh, convinced that, um, you know, energy prices will come down during the second half of uh, this year and, and, and supply chains will normalize. Maybe a last point to, uh, you know, what, what teams define our outlook. Um, and Anna alluded to that uh, in her remarks. It's uh, really a, a divergence of, of uh, monetary and fiscal policy in advanced and emerging market countries. We need to understand now that clearly emerging markets have recovered uh, quite remarkably from the crisis, uh, despite uh, you know lagging behind in in in, in the vaccination rate. Uh, but they can only do so much, uh, so much as policy space allows. And uh, we've seen quite some tightening of fiscal policy in emerging markets, and they also have been much. Uh, further along uh, in terms of monetary normalization. So while emerging markets are now starting to to be a bit more relaxed again on fiscal policy and, 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 and pursuing a path of, of, of a more, uh, should I say, normalized fiscal adjustment, advanced economies are just starting. And with that, bearing in mind, right, the U.S. in a way determines the capital account of uh, of emerging market countries and China determines the current account of emerging market countries that you know could potentially lead to quite quite a um, uh, uh, um, a uh, difficult situation uh, if if we don't see continued pace of recovery in emerging markets driven by external demand. Okay, so let's maybe let's maybe dive into supply chain disruptions more in detail because I think that's a topic that everyone has been quite worried about. Can you tell us, you know, what will it take for supply chain disruptions to finally ease this year? <laughs> well, time, that's for sure. And as Andy was saying, is that it will take time to, to see a normalization uh, or what we can call a return to normal uh, functioning of, of global supply chains. And actually, we don't expect that to happen before 2023. Uh, but that being said, uh, while pressures will remain high in, in H1 this year, for reasons that we described before, uh, clearly we have passed the peak and we will continue to see much more evidence towards lower uh, tensions in, in terms of uh, volumes that are stock, uh, imports, but also price pressures when it comes to containers and, and transportation prices in general. Uh, and, and clearly, I think that uh, is true uh, in H1. We will still have uh, labor shortages that will still exacerbate these tensions, uh, but on a temporary basis. Uh, and, and clearly, uh, the disruptive traffic from China, because they are 
yet entering into the the real COVID nineteen wave, uh, and clearly um, there there is also the risk from the closure of several factories in China. So we still have these uh, temporary seasonal factors at the beginning of the year, and actually this is how we started the year, right? So it's difficult to believe that uh, they will uh, recede going forward, uh, but actually we do see several indicators that are pointing out to that, and and. And actually, I think it's it's reasonable to say that the worst is is clearly behind us, uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, again pressures will not remain high in 2022. Uh, but what we see as as encouraging uh, factors clearly uh, when we look at consumer spending and and actually the composition of that right because we do know that with COVID uh, crisis consumers have spent an incredible share of their uh, of their income in durable goods and actually when. When we look at uh, the replacement cycles and to the shift towards a more sustainable consumption behavior, we can expect that to moderate going forward. Not to talk uh, about, of course, the, the expected slowdown in consumer spending. In an environment where there are still excess savings, but we do know that uh, if we take the case of the US or, or in the case of the UK, they are closer to normalization. And clearly, that's something that would reduce uh, this buoyant uh, cons- consumer growth that we have seen until now. Uh, then we have also the question of supply, because in 2021, we were in an environment of very low stocks and, and companies were rushing to rebuild these inventories. And now we are in a more relaxed environment in most of the sectors, there are also exceptions like automotive, for example, but clearly inventories have returned uh, or even exceed in some cases the, the pre-crisis levels. So that's also good because it means that there is a bit of a less pressure on, on supply. And then, of course, the capacity, uh, the increasing capacity on, on the shipping side, because we do know that orders have increased throughout 2021, and it takes time to build new ships, of course, but the first ones should be operational towards the end of, of 2022, which will increase uh, the transportation capacity and also the, the uh, will reduce the delivery time. Now, of course, that's not all. Uh, because you also need some ramp up in infrastructure, port infrastructure, and also the labor aspect of it, of course. But already uh, that should ease a bit the the burden. Uh, And finally, I think we have seen also input shortages, and especially in the semiconductor topic. And I think we have seen uh, during 2021, and we will continue to see in 2022, a ramp up of production. And that's clearly something that would uh, reduce the pressure that we have had until now. And actually, we can even claim for a start of normalization uh, into this sector in, in 2023. So that's why in the end, I think 2023, it's much more reasonable to see it as a year of, of closer to normalization in global supply chains with 2022, a transition year. Okay, that's really interesting. And so this brings me also to the point of inflation, which it, both of you already alluded to earlier in our conversation. But I wanted to ask Andy specifically, you know, what... What are you expecting from central banks when it comes to inflation? What are the things to watch? Yeah, thank you, Anna. Um, uh, and, and Maria, I think the the uh, the overall uh, supply chain uh, backdrop obviously amplifies some of the other inflationary drivers we have seen. And uh, with if energy prices remain elevated, uh, and we see you know a labor market that strengthens further, uh, information uh, inflation could clearly su- surprise on the upside. Um, and but you know, given that the current inflationary pressures are supply side driv- driven for the most part, right? 
that makes it really difficult for central banks to uh, to, to manage inflation, um, given that rates, raising policy rates, really target demand rather than supply. So normally central banks would look through such a negative um, uh, uh, supply side shock. Um, and But uh, um, in the current situation, what matters now is uh, to prevent uh, inflation from becoming embedded. In other words, inflation expectations uh, being informed by current inflation. And that could trigger, of course, you know, uh, uh, rising expectations of higher incomes. Uh, wage negotiations could you know, fuel uh, uh, more inflation going forward. And obviously, um, preventing such a de-anchoring of inflation expectations that would trigger an adverse wage price loop is 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 uh, very critical at this juncture. So central banks should not uh, and cannot fall behind the curve. And, and some of the early morning indicators uh, for a more hawkish pivot uh, are um, um, wage pressures. Uh, so central banks are closely monitoring that. Um, I mentioned energy prices. Uh, but then there are also two impo other important aspects. Uh, one uh, are you know the extent to which inflationary pressures um, are broadening. Uh, so at the moment we see a lot of of the price pressure coming from energy prices in the U.S. Also from house prices, um, um, uh, cars, etc. Um, in Europe, uh, the 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 price pressures have been less broad, uh, but, you know, there are signs that uh, they could broaden over the next few months. So that's also a warning sign that, you know, central banks need to uh, be be watchful. Uh, and then uh, another aspect are, uh, you know, exchange rate effects and, and spillover effects. I mean, if the U.S., for instance, you know, um, uh, credibly tightens, that, of course, you know, does not leave Europe untouched. Uh, because through you know rising real rates uh, in the US, that of course will 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 um, put down more pressure on the euro, and a result of which imports into Europe become more expensive, uh, and that could you know um, through uh, uh, so-called imported inflation um, add uh, additional price pressures in Europe. So all that combined means that you know central banks are really now in a, at a very critical juncture. Uh, in defining um, uh, and reassessing the so-called forward guidance. Uh, but overall, we do see a noticeable hawkish pivot uh, of all central banks in advanced economies. And uh, again, mostly focused uh, on making sure that inflation expectations don't become de-anchored. Okay. And so my, my very last question for, to both of you is, you know, what are the risks that you're most worried about? Maybe I, I kick kick off with um, again the, the central banks. Clearly, you know the recovery is still very much dependent on you know uh, policy support. Um, on the monetary side, um, there is you know against the background of um, an incredible sensitivity of markets to what central banks do, um, really um, a an appreciable. Uh, risk of a policy error, uh, and that is not, uh, you know, being foolish uh, in the way uh, policymakers go about their business, but it's just simply uh, very extremely difficult 
to calibrate appropriately uh, the policy stance at the moment. So in a very concrete example, central banks could be either too hawkish, so now they raise rates because they're fearful of falling behind the curve, or uh, they, they remain dovish for too long, and then inflation turns out to be much more longer lasting and potentially uh, persistent. Uh, which would not be good either. In the first case, we could see a situation of uh, a financial crisis where central banks, um, you know, uh, cause you know um, a dislocation in financial markets, uh, asset price sell off, etc. Um, and in the latter case, um, it, it's a stagflationary scenario where inflation gets completely out of control. Central banks lose their credibility, uh, and uh, consumption and investment. Um, is depressed because people lose confidence in 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 in, in growth. Uh, so that's really, and the other one is uh, poli- uh, fiscal policy. But most countries need to adjust uh, over the short and medium term. And if we see growth not continuing at the current pace, uh, a minor shock might 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 be enough. Then some countries might struggle to provide enough support to their economies much like during the onset of the COVID crisis, and that could also be a risk. Yeah, and actually, uh, if we think about the emerging markets and, and what Andy was saying uh, regarding the risk of a stagflation, right? Uh, if we if we look at Latin America, we are on the verge of that uh, with much earlier uh, tightening of monetary policies compared to 2013, for example, and of course, a much lower growth and, and much lower recovery. So clearly, there is a risk uh, that be- because of the much hawkisher uh, monetary policy in the advanced economies, and especially in the in the uh, United States, the emerging markets need to hike even more. Uh, but of course, that's that's clearly something that has uh, its own limitations. We we do see that uh, despite a very aggressive uh, hiking cycle, uh, inflation is still not under control in the emerging markets. And clearly, that's a combination of global supply chains, right, and, and imported inflation, but also uh, commodity prices. And clearly, that's that takes time. And and again, as Andy was saying, it's it's difficult to actually uh, counter that with uh, increasing rates. But on the other hand, they need to do that to show proactivity and keep currencies under control. And and clearly, um, we do uh, expect further pressures on the currencies despite this uh, preemptive monetary policy tightening in in 2022, uh, even if these depreciations will remain rather moderate. But we do see pockets of risks uh, which are higher in some of the emerging markets than others. And clearly, uh, we identify countries that are vulnerable because of uh, their liquidity risk, right, and, and the debt structure and the calendar of debt redemptions, uh, very crowded in the short run, but also cyclical weaknesses, uh, and, and most notably, of course, the, the growth cycle. And of course, it goes from Latin America to, to Eastern Europe. But if we were to point some of those very vulnerable emerging markets, Argentina, of course, on, on the top of the list, but also Brazil, uh, with also a heavy electoral uh, calendar this year, Chile, Egypt, uh, Hungary, Romania uh, in in, uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, but also Turkey, of course, in Ukraine, uh, but also with other type of uh, risks uh, around around, and and finally also in Af- in Africa, for example, Nigeria or or South Africa. So clearly, we need to keep a very vigilant uh, eye and monitor the evolution, uh, but we are uh, maybe going into a 
a more stagflationary scenario for some of these emerging markets. And again, this explains also this decoupling uh, in the strengths of the recovery uh, that we were discussing uh, at the beginning in this in this recovery phase. Okay, thank you so much, Andy and Anna. This was super interesting. Speak to you next time. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Maria. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the full report we just spoke about on our website. We'll leave a link in the show notes. If you'd like to discover more of our research, you can also follow the Ludonomics newsletter on LinkedIn. We'll leave a link down below for that too. If you like the podcast, please send it to any of your friends who might like it too, and leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. In the meantime, stay tuned for the next episode.